there were multiple centuries of all three cultures colliding in the city of Trieste. So it makes for a very complex part of the world. And it's really exciting that way too. Disgorged. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Coming up on the show, I talk with Master Sommelier Bobby Stuckey about the wines of Friuli, listening to your guests, and how we keep rediscovering Bordeaux every few years. First, though, a thought. From the outside, it can be really easy to ignore just how much the wine industry relies on migrant labor. Like the rest of American agriculture, much of the demanding physical labor is done by migrants of very legal status, who are often the only people who would take such a hard job for the modest pay it provides. Beyond that, Immigrant and refugee labor is the backbone of the restaurant industry, and if that labor pool dries up, huge numbers of restaurants will close. In general, I'd prefer to keep politics out of this conversation, but sometimes it's simply unavoidable. If you enjoy drinking wine made in the United States, or dining out at a restaurant, you are in no small way dependent on the fact that at some point, there are people who will do a lot of hard work for not a lot of pay, and often it's because that's the only work available to them. Washing dishes, mopping floors, picking grapes, and the rest isn't exactly glamorous. I'm sure it's not work you'd want to do. So maybe now is a good time to think long and hard about the luxuries we all enjoy, and about the people who labor to make them possible. If we don't act to protect those who are most vulnerable, not only will it be a moral failing on our part, but the consequences for an industry which I love, and you presumably appreciate, will be dire. Okay, back to wine. I promise. Joining me today on Disgorged is Master Sommelier Bobby Stuckey, owner of Frasca in uh, Boulder, Colorado, as well as a Scarpetta Winery in uh, Friuli uh, in Italy. So, Bobby, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. Um, so, first question, a uh, very broad question. Uh, so, how did you get started in the wine industry in the first place? Well, I got started in the wine industry um, by being a busboy in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, I was working in restaurants and there was a guy named Tom Kaufman who was managing a restaurant called Sea Steel in the mid eighties. It was 1985 and at the time his girlfriend was the chef. And I loved his whole approach, not just to wine, but just hospitality and restaurant basic thinking and hospitality. And I remember watching him like just do a little lineup like wine class. And I was just so exciting and it was always kind of rumbling around in my brain and then uh in college and a little bit uh in college i worked at a restaurant in flagstaff arizona called bricks uh, restaurant this is in the early 90s 1992 maybe and the guy running the wine program there was um really just great at wine education we would have wine class on wednesdays and i was just like wow if i'm gonna be a waiter here and i get to taste these wines on Wednesdays. I'm just going to take it as far as I can go. So so were those wines like uh, a lot of California wine or, or what was the focus of the wine program there? What was it, What were those first wines that kind of got you uh, excited about wine? You know, it was interesting. It was a very interesting restaurant. Um, Arizona was a COD, is still is a COD state. And the owner would let us waiters put in like 25 bucks or whatever and order some wine at the beginning of the week to buy on Friday that we could 
tastes on our own also. So the wine list was California, but it also had German, uh, had a little tiny bit of Burgundy on it, had Italian. So right from the get-go, I was in a list that, yes, it was a little bit heavy on California, but I was getting to try all sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, Frasca and, and sort of you are in some ways sort of inextricably linked to Friuli um, in Italy. And and what was your kind of first exposure to those wines? And, and how did you get uh, to be kind of so passionate about not just obviously the wine, but the food and the whole culture of a, of a fairly kind of forgotten corner of, it, of Italy? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I was a sommelier 20 years ago, so that was before we had the, the macerated or orange wines that have brought some attention to Friuli. You know, that was before when Radicon and, and Graudner were making, like in Graudner's case, those wines were very polished, oak-influenced wines. That's kind of what I first remember Friuli as, and, and, and the Falugas and the Schiapettos. Um, I just really love those wines. I also, as someone, when I was studying to be a sommelier 20 years ago, how I would study about wine would be, I would read about culture, food, and wine. And I just really fell in love with that space a lot. Yeah, and, and what is the what is sort of the Friulian culture? I mean, obviously, when you're in the northern part of Italy, you've got some elements of what we would, maybe most people would think of as kind of classic Italian culture, but a lot of influence from uh, those other kind of Alpine countries. Um, what, what are some of the kind of, what is, what's some of the of the hallmarks of the culture and the cuisine there? Well, you, you nailed it right on the head. Uh, northern Italy has those northern European influences. Like next door in Alto Adige, they're very really pretty much for all intents and purposes, Sud-Tyrolean. So that their influence in that. Friuli is a little bit more complex in the sense, if you think about it culturally, it is the northern part of the Roman or Italian culture. It is the western edge of the eastern Euro uh, European culture, being Slovenia, and the southern piece of Austria. So, you know, it was part of the Austrian and then what became the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. So there, there were multiple centuries of all three cultures colliding in the city of Trieste. So it makes for a very complex part of the world. And it's really exciting that way, too. You know, you you see Italian cuisine like you've never seen it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's obviously a really... Um interesting jumping off point because when you have those convergences of cultures you end up with um sort of expressions of each culture that are that are distinct from i don't know kind of the uh, i guess where they're more pure so that because of those those influences i mean i always kind of like in that northern part of italy a little bit to sort of uh sicily where you have this obviously italian influence but you have all this influence from the rest of the mediterranean and that creates sort of this um, and you know North Africa and and the Middle East is sort of weird amalgamation of all these cultures. Sounds like like there's definitely some of that in Friuli as well. One hundred percent. I mean, if you look at it historically, Trieste was the port city for the Austrian Empire. And so if you think of all those spices on the spice trade of the Danube River, a lot of those came through Trieste. If you think about the coffee culture of Vienna, that came up through uh, Trieste. And if you think of there's so many great things that got pulled through there. Very cool. 
Okay, so so maybe uh, this is a, a good segue to sort of what what defines the wine culture there. What are the what are the kind of grapes that people should be looking out for, or or styles of wine that that uh, are um, you know sort of uh, intrinsically uh, Friulano? Well, that's a great question, Zach. You know, Friuli is a very much of a polygot wine area in the sense. Let's say if you and I go to Burgundy and we go see three producers three days in a row. I'll do that. My, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's going to be a, a philosophy that's pretty similar for all nine appointments, right? Friuli is much more different where you might, in our nine appointments, in one day see someone making something stainless steel, very crisp, featherweight whites. The same varietals uh, in your appointment later that day might be stainless steel, but much richer and more powerful, maybe if it's in the colio. And then your next appointment might be uh, white wines made in large neutral wood. And then you might have an appointment where someone's doing maceration, like AKA orange wines. So you might see all those people in your nine appointments. And the interesting thing is they all really believe what they're doing passionately is what they, is how the wine should be, tell their story. And it's the only place in the wine region where you, the only place in the world where you get a wine region that diverse, that opinionated, with that many completely different styles of winemaking with the same varietals. So that's one thing we should talk about. What are the varietals you see? White wine wise, you have this perfect mix of indigenous, autochthonous white varietals and international interlopers. You've got, for the international interlopers, you have Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc for whites. Then indigenous, you would have things like Malvasia Istriana, which sure there's 38 Malvasias all over the Adriatic, but the one there in Friuli is completely a different animal. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would also see uh, Tokai, or now known as Friulano. Uh, you would see Ribola Jala. Um, and then for reds, the international interlopers, there's a lot of Merlot planted there. It's the most planted red varietal. Fair amount of Cabernet Franc, a dollop of Pinot Noir, and then indigenous, you have the crazy red varietals, Pignolo, Tazzalange, Rofosco. So, so with the whites first, um, obviously you mentioned there's a lot of different uh, opinions on uh, fermentation and aging and, and a lot of, and obviously maceration or not, um, but, uh, but do you see those those same sort of decisions being made by the winemaker by a given winemaker from varietal to varietal, or will you have a winemaker who says like, okay, my, my, uh, Chardonnay, I do, uh, barrel ferments and my, uh, Friulano, I do stainless or, or, you know, however they choose to, to play that out. Or is it kind of like a house style that they, that they typically apply to all the varietals they might work with? So you might get sort of, you know, uh, barrel ferments on everything or all stainless, really kind of lean styles on everything? Well, it really depends on where they live in Friuli, too, because if you're maybe if you're in the town of Slavia, where Radicon, Casalata, Rounder are, they're probably going to go all in, mostly macerated for everything. Then maybe somewhere else in the Colio, you might um, see someone really choosing the varietal vessel, meaning Malvasia Istriana, a lot of times you'll see a producer do everything they do stainless steel with the exception of Malvasia where they'll put it in neutral wood because it likes a little micro oxygenation. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, I, it makes sense that there would be some sort of uh, some variety there. And and since you mentioned kind of the uh, Radicon and Grobner kind of the 
to me at least, the, the two that uh, producers that are really associated with that um, sort of maceration orange wine style. What what is the and you said I mean when you first got into it, it wasn't even really what they were doing. What's been the the driving force behind um, bringing those wines to the? I mean, I wouldn't say they're exactly uh, <laughs> widely popular, but in certainly in the sommelier community, they've become um, a bit of a cause celeb and and they become more uh, a. a, a a little bit more popular and a little bit more uh, prominent. What is it about um, that style of winemaking that that seems to be um, so uh, so appealing? I guess. Well, I think it depends on the producer. I mean, first of all, I think the wines have a lot of context when you're there. Like if you're eating at a restaurant in the Colio for myself, right on the Slovenian border, some of the cuisine those wines really work with really really well. Um, I think what you've seen here is uh, young sommeliers attracted to to maybe the real hits, the producers that do a really great job, Radicar and Grauner, Casalata. And that's what they f- might fall in love with first. The scary thing is with those macerated wines, you got to really know your producer really well. The three that I mentioned, they do it really, really well. They understand it. They've made the mistakes of 17 years of, of playing around with different lengths of maceration at the exact same time of them getting a little bit of press other producers have jumped into the fray and might not have the same success story yeah it's true i mean orange wine is one of those things where like in my personal experience uh, when it's done well it's really really good but when it's not done well it's some of the hardest to drink wine on the planet and i like weird things but it, it can just be so um so out there yeah it's almost unpalatable to me yeah you know we we have a joke here in-house and two of uh, the frosted psalms are uh, staring at me right now and <laughs> um you know we have a joke in-house you know what our job as sommeliers is not to romance the flaws mm-hmm. so if something's flawed we gotta be direct and and that's not for our guests with so as you said zach when someone gets it right it's a really great experience but they live on a knife edge when you're when you're making wines in that style and if you're not the greatest winemaker or the greatest greatest grower at that type of style you might have a big mistake on your hand so you know you mentioned uh you know the psalm team there and and obviously some of the wines that you're talking about and and outside of maybe the kind of well-known international varietals um you're dealing with a lot of of varietals uh from Friuli that are not very well known and uh, how how do you kind of go about educating your staff so that they can then speak to their get your guests about the culture, the wine, the cuisine of Friuli? How do you how do you kind of start that process with your with your staff, whether they're new to the restaurant or moving up from a you know especially to the Psalm team or whatever? W- what is that process like uh, at uh, Frasca? Uh, well, the process here is it's constant gentle pressure of education. You know, we do pre service every day. There's something discussed every day. By the time you work your way through the system at Frosca, if you're a, a sommelier or a front waiter, you've maybe seen 300 pre-services or more, and that really helps them. And then we also have a, a in-house wine education, like uh, we just did a great Piemontese class on Saturday. Next Saturday, we'll do a, a free Alano class for the staff. And then historically, in the old days, our, our, our staff is too big now, but historically, I think we spent about a half a million dollars in the first 10 years of us being open, taking uh, the staff too freely. 
So there's been a lot of people that have gotten over to Friuli. Uh, I'm looking at the two sommeliers that are sitting at the table next to me. They've both been. So there is a lot of that. And because we're one of those flags of Friuli posted here in the United States, they also get to meet a lot of winemakers. Uh Most Friulano winemakers are going to spend some time at Frosca if they're in Colorado. Cool. And has the, has one of the, um, the changes maybe been the style of wine that you're presenting and the, the sort of familiarity of your guests? Has that, has that kind of, have you seen more and more people coming in who are already at least somewhat versed in uh, those wines, or, or is it still for a lot of people the first time they've ever um, seen Ribola Gialla or, um, you know, uh, Friulano or whatever? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, when we first opened, it was talk about being a pioneer. Like, it was like frightening. People were like just so, it was hard just to even write the wine list. Yeah. We didn't have enough Friuli wine here in Colorado. Um, 12 years in, the import, the distributors here in this state have really embraced the wines. You can see at a at a little wine shop, a hundred yards from uh, our restaurant, cured. You can see Dario Riccaro in there, Petrusa, um, Ronco de Nemitz. It's just peppered in with great producers. So things have really changed here in Colorado. I think the consumer has really grown with us, and a lot of our guests really have fallen in love with Friuli. We're saying that uh, it's not an, it's uh, it's a list that needs a sommelier at all times on the floor because if you aren't a regular, you're definitely looking at a wine list that might be a little bit different than what you're used to. Yeah, I can see that. And it's actually an interesting to me segue into um, another thing I want to talk to you about, which is sort of more uh, broader sommelier uh, trends and, and a little bit about the process of educating um educating sommeliers and, and training them. Um, you know, you obviously went through the, the master sommelier program yourself. And then I, if I'm, I believe I'm correct, you know, we're, we're heavily involved in sort of designing the current uh, service portion of the master sommelier exam. Um, how do you, how do you kind of get your, your psalms to the point where they can sort of take in what someone who may not be a very experienced wine drinker brings to the table in a restaurant with an unusual list? How do you, how do you kind of, how do they handle that? Uh, well, what do I like dry white wines, which is kind of a, you know, the sort of broad general statement that I get all the time. How do you take that and turn it into a recommendation for, for a specific wine that they're, that they might enjoy? Well, what we do, well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed with my staff in the sense, you know, the restaurant business in the United States is littered with turnover and the Frosca wine team is something that has very little turnover. So if you, if I look at Matthew, Carlin, and Jeremy, you've got between the three of them, one person's been here uh, just shy of five years, one person's been here 10 years, one person's been here 12 plus years. They've got a lot of role playing with the guests. They've, they've really seen a lot. I mean, that's a, that's a massive amount of tenure for a wine team. Um, and it really helps them spread wine hospitality. They're really good at listening to the guests and having a guest say, I like dry white. And then maybe their next question would be, what's your favorite varietal or what do you love? And if they say, I like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, then they might say, okay, here's where we can go on the list. Yes, it's a varietal you may never have heard of before, but we can get you there. So 
there's a lot of experience there that really helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like knowing the the wine program inside out is is important. But yeah, like you said, it's it's almost like uh, I always talk when I talk to people about it. It's I always think of it as like uh, you know, it's like a you got to be like a, a, a football team or whatever. You got to practice the plays enough times before they become second nature. And it's that same thing with with wine. You get the question the first couple times, and you might be stumped. You get it the fiftieth or sixtieth time, and you know, kind of okay, this person is saying I like this. And you get the response from them. Okay, well, what do you like about it, or what else do you like? And that the process becomes much more natural. Um, and I guess then it just becomes a matter of sort of getting your getting the the staff to the point where they can kind of bring the guests along with them, which is you know kind of the challenging part, but also the fun part. Yeah, as long as you're listening and asking the right questions, and you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the U.S. Um, they talk dry, drink sweet, meaning. They'll say they love a dry red wine, and then you find out their fra- favorite red wine is a real big brass of Shiraz. Yeah. So <laughs> we probably shouldn't take them to Protatory de Barbaresco on our first date with them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the, it, the the dry, that word, God, that word, just every single time I hear it from a guest, I just have to be like, okay, do you mean dry the way I mean dry, or do you mean dry the way that you mean dry, which could mean almost anything tannic probably but who knows so with that in mind and and dealing again with sort of broader sommelier culture um what is what do you i I think of because i know you're involved in in creating the kind of current standard for the the service portion of the ms exam like i think of when i think of the talk to the people i know who are studying for that and, and and around them i think people tend to fixate a lot on blind tasting obviously because it's so it's become kind of the thing that people associate with with sommeliers and especially the master som exam and or they freak out about theory because there seems to be an endless amount of things that you need to know and and both of those to me i understand definitely being freaked out about and i don't hear a lot of my compatriots talk about service um not because they don't care about it but because um for whatever reason i think everyone takes it a little bit more for granted how do how do you how do you see that and 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 what do you think of that that service component of the exam and and what do you what do you see it's the 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 role of it and the purpose of it being well hopefully we can always keep improving it um i think one of the things that you have with the the current crop of sommeliers is they're just racing to get through the the program and they're ambitious and that's exciting but just as we spoke of the last question, there needs to be so many reps in hospitality on the floor to be a great floor sommelier. The service portion should let people get reinvigorated to be on the floor to work on that craft. Yeah, I mean, I've, I definitely – I know what you're talking about. I think there's a lot of people that, that see – you know, they set a timeline for themselves and they try and get through it as quickly as they can. And, and for some people, that's obviously great. You know, they, they're motivated, as you said, they're ambitious and, and they can really push themselves. But I think for a, a lot of us in the industry, it's also like, you know, if you're working, if you're running a wine program, it's hard to find the the spare time to to devote to studying and devote to uh, blind tasting over and over and all the things that you need to do, even if you're naturally very skilled to get to that level. I always, my, 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 joke i guess just to myself in my head is like i always want to hear a story from someone who's like going for their doing the service portion of their ms exam and be told that like they have to that like part of it is just going up to a like a dirty table and being like okay you have to clear all these dishes in one go as like you i started as a busser and there's a part of me that that has a certain respect for people uh like yourself and i think you know i guess i have respect for myself who worked up from the absolute bottom of the restaurant industry to to get to a point where you can be 
you know, doing things like walking around and talking to tables about wine. And I think some of the people who kind of come through really quickly uh, because of the nature of the industry and, and how it works, maybe spent very little of any time doing, um, you know, a lot of the sort of day to day stuff that actually keeps a restaurant going. Yeah. I mean, I bust a lot of tables last night. Yeah. I was, I was like on fire. It's great. Yeah. It's funny. I, 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 I talk about when I work, when I work on the floor, it's like, I love to think about like the good nights sometimes are ones where I weirdly like don't do a lot of wine stuff. It's all other things. And you're just like, Hey, that's, that's how it goes. You know, if the restaurant's busy enough that, that I got to be in the, in there, you know, bailing out the bar or running food or doing all kinds of other stuff, then like, that's a good sign. That's a good sign for a restaurant. Yeah, for sure. Since you've been a part of the the sort of sommelier culture for a while, we, uh, we, we kind of touched on a little bit of it with just the sort of pace of things. But but are there ways in which you think it's it's evolved or changed in the in the time the twenty ish I think you said years that you've been you know really kind of a sommelier and and in, immersed in the culture? Yeah, it's changed a lot. I think we've had an arc where when I first got in twenty years ago, there was not a lot of wine hospitality, and then we saw a shift where sommeliers started to be really thinking about that. And I'm, I'm afraid to say I'm seeing a shift again that it, we need to revamp that hospitality. I think uh, there's, a, there's a generation now that have gotten into those wine positions so quickly, it's harder than they think it is to be gracious mm-hmm. because it's just so new. There's just so much information. Yeah, it's my perspective, and maybe you share it, maybe you don't. But I, I feel like that the problem I see is like goes in two different directions. I think you see some people in that position who don't, who forget their their obligation to their guests to build a wine program and to to provide wine service that accommodates every person who walks through the door. That it doesn't just sort of the you know the, I mean the cliche or the sort of the obvious example is a wine list that's that's all nothing but obscure wines, nothing but but things that are um, designed to maybe impress the other sommeliers who walk in the restaurant but are not really geared towards what almost any restaurant needs to to meet guests desires so that's one side of it and they sometimes go hand in hand and then i think there's also i see a lot of stuff that's like you know you for, it's easy to forget and you know whether it's someone like you who's the owner of the restaurant or someone who more, more often who's working for the person who owns the restaurant that they forget that they also have this sort of uh, financial obligation to make the wine program profitable. You know, it's a business. It's not just a place for them to explore whatever crazy part of the world or whatever um, obscure varietal or just style of wine or, or whatever they're passionate about, even if that, or if, you know, first growth Bordeaux, like it's not, you know, you gotta, I think it, it, I see a lot of people, unfortunately, who forget that they have those, those are the people that they're supposed to keep happy more than just sort of satisfying their own intellectual curiosity. Yeah, the wine list shouldn't be about your Instagram account. It should be about your guests <laughs> and, and the uh, restaurant company that owns you owns it. You know, yeah. you take care of the guests and the company that's providing the job for you, and then it's about your. You know, I'm very lucky. I mean, I'm I'm seeing my wine team walk around here, and they they're really conscientious about all the guests, and they're also really conscientious about the the business of running a wine list, which is a really important piece. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to get sort of caught up in the romance of, oh, I run a, you know, I'm involved, I'm a sommelier, I run a wine program, I'm involved in it, and it's, and there's a lot that is really kind of um, romantic about it and beautiful about it, and we have the tremendous opportunity to try a lot of wine and do a lot of cool things and sometimes go go cool places, meet cool people, but 
but in the end, like, yeah, it's got to come, you know, you got to be able to turn all that into, you know, black ink. You got to make money off of it or else you're not going to have that job for long um, one way or another. Um, and and I think, yeah, it's just it, it, it is, you know, there's a sensibility that that if you've been in the industry for a while and you've really worked the hospitality side for a while, you just you you have to you have to. I mean, I always I, I always tell my staff, like I, I always think about this, like we are not the ones who are eating and drinking whatever the guest orders. And so you want to do your best for them. You want to, if they ask for recommendations, you want to give good ones, but if they want, you know, they want what they want. And even if that's not a thing that you or I would enjoy, that's not the point. The point is to make them happy. And and if what makes them happy in my restaurant is, you know, big oaky Cabernet and oysters, then great. That's fine. They can, I'm happy to do that. And, and that's not, that I don't have to. I don't have to interpose my own ego or my own personal opinions into that that uh, experience. For sure, you nailed it on the head there, Zach. You know, our nights off. My night off is Sunday. The other six nights, it's about taking care of the guests. Yeah. Um. So to get to a maybe a slightly more uh, enjoyable topic, what uh, what's going on in the wine world, maybe outside of Italy, uh, that you're real excited about? Obviously, you know, you deal a lot with Italian wine, but I'm sure you get a chance to try some other stuff. So whether it's uh, part of the world, a varietal, a style, whatever, what's going on that you are uh, personally excited by? You know, one thing that I think is uh, I have a New Year's resolution this year um, to try to drink more Bordeaux. Uh, you know, I grew up drinking Bordeaux and selling Bordeaux, and it dawned on me last fall I had a uh, that maybe for some reason it's fallen out of my focus mm-hmm. and uh so i started making sure i would open open some and ta- taste it more regularly and there's just you know we think of bordeaux as being crazy high-end expensive but there's also a lot of good wine there that you can drink for on a wine list for 120 to 150 dollars it's really really great yeah, um, and even and even in some cases, quite a bit less than that. I mean, there's some interesting sure. some interesting stuff, especially if you're kind of not concerned with uh, with Appalachian so much that like if you find the right producer, there's there's great you know there's great Bordeaux that's that can, you can put on your list for fifty or sixty or seventy bucks. Which yeah, is it's amazing. It's really great. Yeah, it's so funny. It's funny about. those like all those various. Po- I feel like there's the places of France and Bordeaux is a great example where like the high end has gone so through the roof that it's sort of left everyone else. If you are if you're not a first or second growth Bordeaux house, like well, like no one's going to pay the insane insane prices that people will pay for those, but and and so you kind of end up, but then then because those prices have gone up so high that you kind of there's this vacuum of like all the money that would have gone to that or all the money is still going to those wineries and then the even the you know fourth and fifth growths and the stuff that's not classified, they have a hard time pushing their prices up because they're not you know the famous famous uh, chateaus. Exactly. I think there's a lot. There's a lot of exciting wine to drink there for sure. What about? Uh, is, I mean, do you guys do you try a lot of uh, a lot of stuff from the U.S.? Is there is there stuff that uh, that you find interesting here or, or other parts of the New World? Oh, for sure. I, I think I think California has been in such a wonderful spot in the last few years. You know, and and pendulum swing, and uh, you know the pendulum is definitely in their favor right now. There's a lot of great wine to to drink, for sure. And are, are people, I mean, I, I would think that, uh, you know, that what's is maybe becoming a little clearer that, that there's a there's California wine outside of Napa and Sonoma and that like people are starting to be like, oh, like I can drink, you know, uh, Lake County uh, Pinot or I can drink, um, you know, whatever, uh, Santa Barbara or, or all over there. Santa Barbara state. is phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. There's so much good wine down in Santa Barbara that, you know, Santa Cruz Mountains, there's a lot of good stuff up there from some of the older producers that are still making wine that some of us have forgotten about that. 
Reed Delvin to some of those producers. Really great. Yeah. Um, circling back to Freely for a sec, I think you, you mentioned when I saw you in Seattle that you're uh, working on a book. Is that right? As a as a part of yeah. maybe telling the story. Can you talk a little bit about what the what the book's going to be about and and uh, sure. where you stand you know, in that? You know, mostly when you write a book as a restaurateur, as a chef, uh, my business partner Lockwood and I, it would be based on uh, Frosca. In this case, this book's a little different. It's really going to be a love letter to Friuli. So, yes, it's through Lachlan, myself, and the whole Frosca team's lens, but it's really based on how we can share with you and whoever the readers are itineraries, dishes, stories of Friuli. So if you end up getting the book, sure, you get a, uh, a restaurant book, like a cookbook, but they're um, – Meredith Erickson, who's going to help us write it. She wrote the Joe Beef book. She wrote uh, Olympic Provisions, Mm -hmm. Le Pigeon. She's going to help us translate our story of these experiences in Friuli for the the reader. Awesome. Yeah, it's and it's cool to think about that connection between you know a restaurant, as you I think you said earlier, you know, kind of like this like outpost flag of Friuli, and and how that ties back to to the actual uh, place. Yes. Very cool. Um, and is there a, is there a rough timeline for that? Or it sounds like it's obviously still a work in progress. So we'll, we'll just yeah. keep an eye out for it at some point. Hopefully, hopefully we turn in the manuscript spring of 18, fall of 18 release. Very cool. And, uh, have you, so and all the time you've been, you've had Frasca and, and, and been so, uh, in sort of enmeshed in, um, you know, the wines of Friuli and, and to some extent, I think probably most of Northern Italy, has, has there ever been a part of you that's like, ah, uh, if I ever did another restaurant, it would be this other wine region whether it's another part of italy or some other part of the world is or is it are you happy with uh with uh being the the guy with the freely uh the freely wine well it's funny you say that um zach we're opening a restaurant in the late spring early summer in denver called tavernetta ah. and it's kind of uh our and i say our uh, the team here's um expression of the great historic italian trattoria Cool. And it's gonna it's going to have dishes from all over the peninsula, and it will be an all Italian wine list, with the exception of one thing, champagne. <laughs> and, um, so it'll be all Italian except for the champagne section, which is actually so Italian. Yeah. Because if you think about it, when you're in Italy, especially northern Italy, they drink more champagne than the French do. They're just they just gobble it up, and so I think that's gonna be really fun. Yeah, that sounds great. So you said that's coming in uh, the spring here uh, this year, right? Yeah. Carl awesome. and Carr uh, is the one really running that wine program, and uh, she's been with us a long time, and it's going to be really exciting to see the program she puts together for us. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, making my way out to Colorado and giving it a try. Bobby, thank you so much for your time. really appreciate it. Uh, it was a real pleasure chatting with you, and uh, look forward to uh, reading your book when it does come out. Thank you, and I can't wait to see you next trip out to Seattle. Thanks again to Bobby Stuckey for joining me on Disgorged. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Disgorged Wine. If you're in the Seattle area, stay tuned for more information about my upcoming wine pop-ups and other fun events through 2017. Thanks for listening, and cheers.